0: Not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a role in the FBI.
1: In this world, you look out for number one. If you, if any people, take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling.
0: All right, welcome back into the Original Gangsters Podcast. I am Scott Bernstein. I'm here with my partners in crime, Dr. Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello? And the man behind the glass, our producer, Roberto Beauchene. Hey now. So uh, we're very lucky to have uh, another Jimmy Hoffa-related guest. We're going to kind of stay on the Hoffa topic this week um, since it's uh, around the anniversary, 44-year anniversary of Jimmy Hoffa disappearing. Uh, We have the uh, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino on Netflix pick coming out in the next couple months called the Irishman 200 million dollar mob movie uh, the trailer just dropped online this week um, and we're gonna get some insight from a very legendary g-man Greg Stasekel, Uh has had a storied career in the FBI that lasted three decades he's retired right now but um, this guy's uh, uh, career in the federal government could be a movie Greg uh, thanks for joining us
2: I'm
0: happy to be here so, uh, Greg, why don't we just jump right in and uh, kind of tell us your uh, your kind of personal connection to the Hoffa case in terms of, uh, you know, working it uh, from, from the FBI angle.
2: Well, uh, I had just uh, just to Detroit after having uh, graduated from New Agents Class at Quantico. And uh, uh, I'd been there about a month when, uh, you know, when Hoffa went missing. So uh, it was kind of uh, all hands on deck, and uh, all the agents, I think probably the vast majority of agents in the Detroit office were involved in the investigation in the first few days. And uh, I went out with another more experienced agent and uh, was involved in doing the neighborhood investigation around the Marcus Red Fox, which. Um, Uh, you know, entailed, Uh, for example, uh, Hoffman having made a call from uh, the uh, hardware store near the Marcus Red Fox, and uh, uh, we interviewed a number of people, employees, in that strip mall that's right there, and and also in the uh, restaurant itself, so that was pretty much my early involvement, and then uh, within a few years, I was on the surveillance squad, so we were doing a lot of uh, surveillance of uh, people in the uh, Detroit family.
0: And a lot of those and people you were surveilling, Greg, am I right, were suspects in the Hoffa investigation?
2: That's correct. Uh, you know, we knew that the uh, the, fa- the Detroit family had been involved. We knew uh, Jimmy Hoffa had had a meeting with the Jack Alone brothers uh, a week or two before uh the time that he uh, disappeared and was last seen at the Marcus Red Fox, and uh, you know, we also were, of course, aware of the bombing of uh, uh, Richard Fitzsimmons' car at the uh, at Nemo's down on uh, Michigan and Crumble. So
0: yeah, just so for people to understand, uh, there was a. A pretty bitter feud going on in in the months leading up to uh, Hoffa's disappearance. You had uh, Hoffa that was uh, 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 Jimmy Hoffa was going on a kind of a public media tour, telling everyone that he was going to expose the mafia influence in organized or in uh, organized labor and was going to kind of ride back into the presidency. Uh, on the mandate of cleansing the union of the same mobsters that he let into the union in the first place. And on the other side, you had uh, the mob and members of the Teamsters union that were actively trying to prevent uh, that re-election campaign. And they were doing it by any means necessary. Things were getting uh, very physical, very violent. There were beatings, there were fire bombings. And then uh, about a month before Hoffa disappeared, um, Richard Fitzsimmons, who was a uh, union leader at local, uh, is it local? What was the local that uh, Detroit had? Was it two ninety
1: nine? I don't remember. One ninety nine. I believe it
2: was two ninety nine. Local one on Trumbull. Yeah, local mm-hmm. two ninety
0: nine. Um, Fitzsimmons' dad, Frank Fitzsimmons, had replaced Jimmy Hoffa as the president of the Teamsters. Little Fitz, Richard Fitzsimmons, was going to run for uh, a local Teamster post in Detroit. And someone uh, tried to kill uh, both Fitzsimmons in a car bomb uh, on Michigan Avenue at Nemo's Bar. That was what uh, Greg was referencing. Yeah, and,
2: and uh, so th- this was the uh, this was sort of the milieu that was uh, going on uh, when uh, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared, and. Uh, we, of course, like I said, we were all out doing crime scene investigations, trying to piece together a, a timeline, and uh, and also uh, developing uh, the them and, and suspects in, in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. So, and and that continued uh, for a long period of time. In um, agent by the name of Bob Garrity he was. Uh, the case agent on the Hoffa disappearance, and was also had um, experience having worked uh, with teamsters and their connections with uh, organized crime, uh, was the the case agent on the disappearance, and later drafted what's referred to as the Hoffax memo, uh, uh, rather lengthy memo, explaining what investigation had been done and some of the conclusions that we made regarding office disappearance.
0: Greg, were, were you aware of the the bombing of the Fitzsimmons car when it happened, or was it more retroactive investigation?
2: You know, for me, it was retroactive. I, I'm, I'm sure other, uh, for example, Garrity and, and some of the other agents that were working organized crime were probably uh, uh, more aware of, it. and of course, like I said, I had only been in the Detroit office about a month when Jimmy disappeared, so uh, I didn't exactly have my finger on the pulse of organized crime or the or the investigations that were ongoing at the time.
0: But why don't you why don't you talk us uh, talk us through you actually developing that kind of finger on the pulse of the Detroit organized crime family as the next couple of years go on? You're on the surveillance squad. You're um, you know, you're, you're following around and investigating a lot of the major suspects in the Hoffa uh, murder conspiracy. Kind of talk to us about your opinion of those people and what you became and what you came to kind of learn about them and uh, their possible role in Hoffa as the years went on.
2: Well, uh, let me start with uh, Neil Welch was the uh, special agent in charge of the Detroit office when I arrived in 1975. And he had been the SAC for a few years. Um, he, uh, uh, his priority uh, as SAC, and that continued throughout his career, was uh, working uh, organized crime, uh, primarily the La Cosa Nostra, the, the mafia. And uh, in Detroit, uh, he had he had done a prototype in, in the office before that, and I believe he was in the... Uh, The uh, Buffalo office of, uh, but it was upstate New York where he had previously been an SAC. And he had developed this prototype for a surveillance squad. And basically what that was was that you would have a dedicated team of agents that their sole responsibility would be to do surveillance of, uh, and in this case, organized crime. And these agents would follow known members. Uh, the family, uh, and they would not go into the office. We would have nondescript cars, not cars that look like uh, police cars or, or FBI cars, but cars that were nondescript. We'd wear street clothes, and we would not go into our regular office. We had an off-site location. And, uh, our uh, like I say, our priority was to follow members of the uh the Detroit family, in our case, and as part of uh, being on that squad, you had to learn who the the members of the family were, and you had to be able to recognize them by sight. So we had photographs. We also studied the hierarchy of the family, and our job was to develop intelligence on the family. Uh, There were other ancillary duties that we did, but that was the primary thing. And... and, uh, we always had uh, cameras with us, and uh, so we would, uh, if, if the opportunity presented itself, we would take pictures and uh, try to surveil meetings, and even in some cases, uh, when we saw that they were going into restaurants or public places, we'd try to place agents close by to try to get uh, uh, overhears of the conversations. So. While I was on the Surveillance Squad, and I went on the Surveillance Squad in 1977, after having some experience on some other squads, and, um, uh, like I say, I quickly had to learn who these people were. You also, of course, had to learn the geography of the city and where a lot of these individuals lived and their businesses and things like that. So, that was basically the background uh, when I went on to the Surveillance Squad, and, Spent um, about three years on the squad and came to know a, a lot of members of the family and and uh, uh, you know where they would meet, where they would had uh, 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 their businesses and things like that.
1: Let me ask you something, Greg. Um, was the bureau aware prior to the disappearance of the um, developing tension between? Jimmy Hoffa and members of Detroit organized crime were you aware that the local mafia family here was not pleased with Hoffa's desire to uh retake the presidency for example uh
2: yes uh, and i you know I can't say specifically but but I can say that yes definitely the 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 agents that were involved in in uh, and working his crime and working the Teamsters. We're aware of the tension. We're aware of uh, of course a lot of it was in, in the public media but uh that you know Hoffa was trying to he had stepped down from the presidency when he went to jail for his, uh, uh jury uh, tampering and uh, actually Frank Fitzsimmons was his <laughs> successor but uh uh he uh Fitzsimmons was more amenable to working with the uh, with organized crime. And uh, uh, Hoffa was, of course, his own man. He had been uh, cooperative with organized crime, but uh, uh, tensions had built up, and, and there was resistance by organized crime helping him take the presidency of the Teamsters. So, yeah, they were aware of that tension.
1: One thing that I think is interesting that we should point out is that At the time of Hoffa's disappearance, the local crime family here in Detroit is also transitioning to a new regime. So the godfather, Joe Zerilli, is in uh, semi-retirement. His nephew, Jack Tocco, is being groomed to take over the the leadership. And so it's interesting that you were— um, investigating the Hoffa case but also surveilling the organization as all of this is is taking place so it's an interesting time historically here um, can you tell us about that 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 transition um, your experience surveilling the, the organization and how you actually ended up documenting the um, inauguration of of Jack Tocco as as the new boss of Detroit organized crime
0: it's the only photo that's ever been taken at a uh, Godfather's election or, or a ceremony to install a Mafia Don, and uh, Greg was on the scene snapping photos. Um, it's considered one of the most uh, uh, groundbreaking images um, in FBI history, and Greg took it.
1: It's pretty extraordinary. Can you can you tell us about that?
2: Sure. Um, well, first of all, like I said, I, I went on a surveillance squad in 77, and, and uh, over the period of time became a you know, Pretty knowledgeable about the family and the, and the different members of the family and some of the dynamics. And uh, in 1979, 1979, um, the uh, as, as we did uh, on that particular day, uh, it had no particular uh, knowledge that anything special was going to happen. We were aware of the fact, of course, that, that there was. I'm not going to say I came up with the leadership, but uh, Innocence really uh, had been in charge of the family, I think as more of a caretaker role uh, or a placeholder. Um, But at at any rate... uh,
0: That was Joe Zerilli's son. He had originally been the acting boss. Then he got in trouble for stealing from a Las Vegas casino, was sent to prison, and Joe Zerilli decided to uh, kind of pass over... His son and promote his nephew Jack Toko. Would that that's would that be an accurate description of what happened?
2: Yeah, that's my understanding now. I'm not sure we fully understood that at the time, but uh, yes, it, is, it I, I think that's accurate. And uh, so, in in June of 1979, uh, we had we had two crews uh, on our surveillance squad. One was working an, another member of the family, and we had set up at. Uh, uh, Raphael Quasarano's, uh, and he was known as Jimmy Q, uh, his business, which was on Gratiot. He owned a barber uh, equipment supply place on, on Gratiot. So we had set up up there, and we were watching, and uh, he observed uh, Frank Barmerito arrive at the site, uh, driving a uh, van. Frank was a member of the family, uh,
0: he was very correct. close to the Jackaloney brothers.
2: Correct. And, uh, uh, then, uh, he arrives in a van and goes inside the business. And then later we see him exit. And right after, and he, he left, uh, driving, um, uh, the, uh, car that belongs to Jack Pilko's usual car, which is a Cadillac. And, uh, then we saw, uh, Jack Tilco and, uh, uh, Jimmy Q,
0: uh,
2: was Rano, uh leave the business, and uh, there was another person there, and I can't recall who it is. I think it was uh,
0: uh, I think it was Big Mike Polizzi who was their. Uh,
2: that sounds right. Uh, who, who was the
0: kind of the, the chief financial officer of, of the family? He ha- he handled all the uh, all the money and all uh, all the numbers. So
2: they get him this van that Bomarito had uh, brought, and uh, they uh, they leave the lot. Well, of course uh, we. Prior to them exiting uh, Quasarano's business, we weren't aware that, that Coco was there. We hadn't seen this car in the parking lot until we saw Bambino leaving it, and we didn't know that, that Polizzi was in the business either. But at any rate, they, uh, uh, they're in the van, and they start proceeding west, uh, uh, and uh, so we followed them. And we're going west, and about the same time, we're getting radio traffic from the other crew that's following another member of the family. And they are also proceeding west from a from a different location. And uh, it, it becomes clear at some point that uh, we may be going to the same place, but we're not quite sure where it is. Ultimately, we ended up on uh, North Territorial Road near Haggard, yeah, which is north of Chelsea at a place that was called the Timberland Game Ranch. And uh, uh, we see the van uh, go in, uh, and uh, ultimately we see a number of vehicles go in. Some of uh, And we've got both crews from our surveillance team up there, and uh, we're trying to find a place where we can surveil the the entrance to the game farm. It's not easy because... uh, because of the nature of the area, I mean it's it's rural, uh, but we found a, uh, we found a place where we could set up and kind of see the entrance and we, uh, we identified a number of people that we knew to be members of the family they were all high, the
0: they were all high- ranking members, right It was everyone that was a capo or above like it, it was uh, it was a very elite group, a very uh, exclusive group that was up there to 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 inaugurate Jack is that right
2: that is that is true. And, um, um, later on we would, uh, uh, we would have the state police stop a couple of the uh, vehicles and we identified, uh, some of the individuals that, and, um, there was even some members of the family, uh, older members that a lot of us had never even seen before, but we, we were aware of
0: a couple of the guys I think came from out of state. Uh, I know that, um, Anthony Abate, uh, came with Pete Licavoli's vote from Arizona. And I know that uh, a guy by the name of uh, Salvatore Monkey Sam Mizoraka was a real old-timer that had uh, kind of been the Detroit mob's conduit to Canada and Chicago. Um, I know he was identified as being there
2: as well. Yeah, I knew there, were, there was at least one vehicle that was out of Canada. So uh, anyway, uh, so we're out there. So there would have been about uh, about 10 surveillance agents, and then we had... Uh, one or two agents from the Ann Arbor office, that was their territory up there, uh, came up. And uh, uh, at some point we learned, uh, I learned anyway, I, I wasn't aware of it, that the game farm was owned by the Ruggerello brothers, Louie and, uh, and Tony Rugirello. So, um,
0: who were top were were top uh, mob capos in the family and had a lineage that uh, dated back to during prohibition, and and their father and their uncle had kind of come up through the ranks with uh, Jack Tocco's, uh, uh, father and uncle.
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's all correct. And they also, I think they were given, among other things, responsibility for what accounting as far as whatever activities the family was conducting there. Um,
0: and so that's up. I'm, that's up by Ann Arbor. Just for so people to understand that uh, maybe are listening listening to this and aren't from Michigan, um, the Timberland Game Ranch was in Dexter, Michigan, and it was probably about ten minutes from the University of Michigan at, in Ann Arbor. Uh,
2: I would say a little bit 10 minutes, but not. It course, you know, it's uh, maybe as the crow flies, but uh, a little bit more circus route. Like I say, it's in a rural area, so, and it was, it, you know, it's a it's a private. Uh, It was a private game ranch. uh, It was was uh, like an upscale
0: hunting lodge.
2: Yeah, and they would... uh, I think uh, they had people that would come out and they could... uh, You could hunt. uh, I'm putting that in quotation marks. (laughs) Some exotic animals and things like that. Um, So, and whatever social activities that they had going on there and stuff, uh, you can actually... uh, you can you can go online now, and, and uh, I've done it. And you can you can Google it and uh, get aerial views of, of the uh, game farm. It's changed a little bit since those days, but. Uh, but at least you can get an idea of what it looks like. Um, So
0: they they obviously felt very safe going up there, thinking that what was going on, which was you guys getting hip to it and following them, they kind of thought that this was the one place that you wouldn't be able to get hip to or follow them. So this was a place they felt like it was a totally secured environment. Uh, Would would you say that's accurate?
2: I I would say that's true, and and it's uh, basically if you're in a vehicle, there's only one way in and one way out. but, uh, so, and obviously we, we couldn't go in the way they went in. They had, they had security set up inside and, uh, you know, they, and of course it is private property and we wouldn't have been allowed to go in even if we'd wanted to. So, and, and being, you know, somewhat, uh, surreptitious, we, uh, we weren't readily, uh, or it just wouldn't have been a good idea. But, um, being a, a relatively young agent, and, uh, I was standing there with another agent that I know, and, and, uh, a guy by the name of Keith Cordes, uh, I said to Keith, you know, this, this is something obviously pretty big, uh, we should try to make an effort to figure out how, we, you know, how we can get in there. And, of course, the only way to do it would be on foot. And, uh, he, he said, you know, uh, I'm up for it, but, uh. You know, I'm not sure we can get permission. And I said, well, I'm not sure we can either. But uh, why don't we just go ahead and do it? And uh, and, and like the old adage, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. So uh, we had another agent drive us down to Haggard Road, which runs south. North Territorial runs east-west. It was the next intersection past the game farm and on the west end. So we got dropped off on Hegert Road and we climbed a fence. That fence was not the fence of the game farm. That was another piece of private property. But then we were able to to, uh, cross that property and then went over another fence and got into the game farm. And I'm guessing we hiked uh, probably about a half a mile uh, through the woods and stuff, and uh, trying to navigate our way through there, and uh, ultimately we could hear some voices and stuff. And we got to a point where we could see and hear uh, about where uh, this conclave was going on, but we really couldn't see or hear anything, uh, you know, well enough to to be able to tell what what was going on. So. Uh, we walked up a little bit further, and I saw uh, a swath of open land going into where there were some buildings and I could see this is where they were up where these buildings were, and uh, uh, this large group of guys, some of which we could recognize, but this swath of land of uh, uh, open uh, area was uh, was an archery range um, and there was a big archery target at one end, so We got up and got behind the target, and uh, he he said to me, "Um, you know, is this a good idea for us to be behind this target? And I said, well, I don't think these guys are into doing archery. So uh, at any rate, I had brought with me my camera, and uh, I had a 300-millimeter lens on it. So I set the camera up on top of the target, and was able to snap a couple of pictures, uh, one of which was, was decent. Um, and of course, that was before the days of digital photography, so we didn't know how good they were at the time. But uh, ultimately, we, uh, after the film was developed, we realized I had a picture of Jack Tocco, uh, Anthony Corrado, and looking back alone, they were standing there with Tocco sort of in the middle, and uh, it appeared that uh, they were um, uh, congratulating uh, uh, I may be reading more into this, but it it appeared that they were you know, congratulating Jack Toko. Uh, later we learned that that was the meeting in which was, uh, Jack Toko was uh, elevated to being the godfather.
0: And you guys learned that from um, the fact that it, it it came out later that Jack Tocco's driver, who was also his first cousin, a guy by the name of Tony Zito, um, was actually feeding the government information.
2: That's, yeah, that's my understanding. I obviously did not have first-hand knowledge of that at the, at the time, but I was aware that, the, that we had learned that that's what the meeting was.
0: You know, what, what you, Greg, ironically, Greg, yeah, go ahead. Real quick, you, you, uh, we've talked about it before, and you were like, Yeah, I knew that Jack's driver or you knew that someone in Jack's inner circle was feeding them, was feeding information, but you just knew him as like a number, right? You didn't know him as a name.
2: Yeah, that, you know, in the the Bureau, that's the way we operated, you know, um, especially, uh, confidential informants of that, uh, of that stature, uh, known to one or two people specifically, uh, for obvious reasons, and, uh, So I was aware of the information, but I wasn't aware of specifically who the source was.
1: One thing that strikes me uh, as very interesting about this operation is how uh, something that tipped you off that this was very significant is that different uh, factions that normally don't associate with each other in a kind of social way uh, were all convening at, at the same place at the same time and I always just think that's interesting because I think if you watch The Sopranos and things like that you think all these guys are chummy with each other they hang out at the same social clubs but with a, a crime family that's not necessarily the case I mean in some cases some members barely even know each other and here you were you were seeing the leadership of the different factions convene at the same time and and some of these guys normally would not uh, hang out with each other. Um, can you talk uh, talk to us about that I, I just think that's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, you know, um, in, in my experience, and, and, and this is shared by other guys that, that had a lot more experience doing this stuff than I did. Um, they said, you know, for for to have to have a group come together like this, and granted, this was primarily the Detroit family with a few other people that were, you know, uh, tied in from from other families, liaison and stuff like that. But ordinarily, you wouldn't have. Um, a gathering like this, except maybe for a, a funeral or a wedding uh, of a family member, and even then, it's not going to be a meeting where they're going to do business. This is uh, this was a business meeting, and uh, it was a, a the hierarchy of the Detroit families, very unusual, and uh, it just happened to be fortuitous that we were there.
0: Now, do you? Um There's been some rumors that uh, the Ruggirello brothers uh, had buried bodies on that property, um, uh, that Timberland Game Ranch property. I know that uh, Tony Ruggirello was a suspect in his wife's disappearance. His wife, uh, back in the summer of 1968, I believe, um, informed Tony that she was going to divorce him, and on the the very next day, she vanished. Um, They never found her body. So... Can you talk about uh, the, the perspective of, from the FBI looking at that property? Um, was that a piece of property that that, the, that there was a possible or there was a belief that that Hoffa's body was possibly taken there because they felt so safe there three years or four years after Hoffa's disappearance they felt safe enough to go up there and hold this uh, you know uh, this ceremony to, to elect their new Don. Um, was there was there the belief from the government that they possibly could have uh, taken Hoffa up there and buried him?
2: Uh, you know, I've heard that speculation, and I think as far as the bureau is concerned, I don't think anybody believes that that uh, that that uh, that that was what happened to Hoffa. I can't speak to you know, for example, Ruggerello's wife. What what if anything he did with the bo- her body? Um. Uh, but the Bureau's prevailing theory regarding Hoffa, and I think it's somewhat borne out by intelligence that we've gleaned over the years, is that they destroyed it as quickly as possible. Um, they knew that there would be, that that would obviously, um, Hoffa's disappearance would bring about a tremendous amount of media attention and, of course, uh, the attention of the Bureau and, and other police agencies. So they knew if the body was destroyed, how difficult it would be to make a case, uh, especially if nobody was talking. So, um,
0: And we knew that we,
2: they destroyed the body as quickly as possible.
0: And we knew that the, uh, or you knew, that the Detroit Mafia family had access to, I believe, three separate incinerators, two of them at sanitation companies um, in the Detroit area, so they had uh, you know, easy access to one of these places where they could get rid of a body. In fact, one of them, uh, we were speaking about this on our last episode with Keith Corbett and Mike Carone, one of those places, which was called Central Sanitation, was owned by uh, Jimmy Quasarano and Pete Vitali. Um it burned down in a suspicious fire uh, a couple years after Hoffa's disappearance, and uh, nobody was able to get a search warrant to get in there, and I think that the people that owned it kind of wanted to make sure that was that stayed the case.
2: Yeah, and that, that, that's certainly uh, a strong possibility. And I know there were some uh, they-
0: FBI informants, too. Sorry to interrupt you, Greg, but I just wanted to add this. There were some FBI informants that told, um, told you guys that— uh, central sanitation had been a uh disposal area for bodies i think there was a quote from an informant like 10 bodies had been done away with that central sanitation
2: yeah and and, and again uh the uh, the speculation the uh, well it's more than speculation the uh the our, our belief was and when i say our the, the bureau's belief was that uh, that Hoffa's body was destroyed, and uh, the the, uh, the use of an incinerator was certainly, I think, the prevailing um, theory at the time. So, but going back to the game farm, uh, I, I don't I, I don't think that they would have posed to the body in the in the way um, it, it, by burying it on a, on a piece of property. especially something like the game farm. Keep in mind that when when they did these hunting trips and stuff up there, and, in fact, the day we were up there, uh, they had hunting dogs and stuff up there that they would release. And uh, one of the reasons that we left when we did was that we were told uh, we had finally gotten the airplane up and uh, and they were surveilling from the air. And we had a... uh, NHT, a handy talkie with us, and the airplane told us, hey, uh, it looks like they're releasing the dogs.
0: Release uh, the hounds.
2: Yeah, and uh, so we thought it was probably a good idea that that we uh, depart the area as quickly as possible, and so we did, but the point being that, you know, you're not going to have bodies out there buried, if you're running dogs and stuff out there. That's not a good idea. That's a good point. You know, there have been a lot of people that would be out there with access to that property, and, you know, these uh, organized crime guys, they've got... (laughs) They obviously have a lot of experience in disposing their bodies, and they can do it pretty efficiently, I think. So.
0: They got it down to a science. Especially I the, think so. Especially <laughs> the Detroit family who, through history, uh, we're going on uh, maybe eight 90 years of the Detroit mafia in its modern form, and there's only been one member of the family that was convicted of a murder and it, and it's debatable whether or not that murder was directly connected to organized crime it was from the 90s it was a guy named Tony Cerullo, and who was a pretty low level guy so no significant no there were, have been no substantial homicide convictions of any members of Detroit organized crime for 100 years it shows yeah. you how good they are at murder how good they are at their business
2: that, and, you know, they're obviously going to give it a lot of work, especially if you if you target somebody like uh, uh Jimmy Hoffa. And, and, again, knowing that the, the media attention and the, and the law enforcement pressure that happening. So I think that that was probably uh, one of their primary concerns is what we're going to do with the body.
1: Greg, what do you make of the uh allegation, and this is the premise of the new Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman, that... uh Frank the Irishman Sheeran, who was a labor racketeer on the East Coast, that he was, um, he, he came into Detroit and was the person who executed Hoffa. We've had some other experts on the show, uh, some of your colleagues in law enforcement who are not convinced of that. What, what's your take on this hot topic right now, that the, the so-called Irishman was the one who executed Hoffa?
2: You know, I know that that Frank was, uh... Was listed in the Hoffex memo of one of of several uh, possible suspects uh, of either actually executing uh, Hoffa or uh, or at least being involved. And uh, I, I think I share the skepticism of at least <laughs> I haven't talked I haven't talked to any agents that are convinced that uh, that he was in fact uh, directly involved in Hoffa's uh, abduction and death. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a theory that is somewhat plausible. I've read the book, um, you paint houses, don't you? But, uh, there's a lot of things in the book that just don't, uh, that we we know not to be true. And so it, if those things, and it's not even clear that, that he even, that Frank Sherini even claimed to have been the, uh, the murderer, yeah. um, you know that's coming uh, indirectly, uh, so I'm I'm very skeptical.
1: And what about that slogan? I mean, <laughs> the idea that um, in the underworld, people when they're talking about murder, they say uh, we paint houses. What, what's your opinion of that so-called that slogan? Expression. Yeah, expression. Well, I had
2: never heard it before, and I thought, well, <laughs> maybe that's something that's uh, you know parochial or something else. But uh, since that time, I, I've talked to a number of people, and uh, and I think you guys feel the same way I do. I had never heard it before, and uh, and no one I've ever talked to has heard that, that terminology before. So it's new to us, uh, at least the people I've talked to. And uh, so that's that's another thing that you kind of go, you know, it makes you scratch your head a little bit.
0: Greg, how, how do you envision... Um... The afternoon that Hoffa disappeared playing out, do you see this as a uh, effort that was s- solely um, carried out by the Detroit family? Do you see this as an effort that was a combination of uh, the Detroit family and the Genovese cram- uh, crime family from New Jersey? Um, do you see this as, I guess we've already kind of dispelled the notion that this came from uh, Pennsylvania or Delaware, which is where Sheeran um, uh had his roots planted, but uh, you know, wh- who do you see as the the group of people or, or multiple groups of people that came together to uh, uh, consummate this conspiracy?
2: Well, I think I think the Detroit family was certainly involved um, for a number of reasons. Um, we know that that Harper met a few weeks before his disappearance with with uh, uh, Tony and, uh, and Billy. Uh,
0: I think Greg. Uh, I think Greg. I'm pretty sure it was on the 26th. So it was actually four days, I believe, before he, uh, Hoffa disappeared. There was surveillance. There was um, surveillance at Hoffa's uh, 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 house in Lake Orient of the Jackaloni brothers coming to meet with him. I believe on the evening of the 26th.
2: And we and we know that that, uh, that uh, Hoffa uh, had gone to the Marcus Red Fox to meet with. Tony Giacalone, and and maybe others, but uh, or, I'm sorry, not uh, yeah. Tony Giacalone, and uh, and maybe others. And Jimmy had no intention of going into the restaurant. Uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't dressed to go in the restaurant, and we know that he went to uh, a hardware store. This was before the days of cell phones. He went to the uh, hardware store. In the strip ball near the Marcus Red Fox, and placed a call to his wife and asked if uh, if Tony Jackalone had called because he was waiting for him at the uh, in the parking lot at the Marcus Red Fox, and he hadn't seen uh, He hadn't come yet, and uh, so we know that he was there waiting for him. We also know, based on witness uh, witnesses, that uh, a car matching the description. Of Tony Jackalone's um, son uh, was seen in the uh, parking lot. Later, we developed some forensic evidence that uh, Offa had apparently been in that car in the back seat, and uh, so that's that's what we know. So we know that the Detroit family was involved. We also um, the the bureau developed information that. Uh, uh, the New Jersey uh, family was involved, uh, and the teamsters there, Provenzano specifically.
0: Um, Tony Provenzano, and, who was the uh, New Jersey uh, boss for the Genovese crime family, which is one of the New York Five families, but a lot of times the New York Five families have kind of satellite uh, offices, and Tony Provenzano was, was running that Genovese satellite in New Jersey.
2: Yeah, we know that Provenzano and, and uh Offense had a falling out, so uh, they had been, I guess, pretty good friends. But uh, there was a falling out, so uh, that's what we're aware of. Uh, and, and again, when I say we, the, the bureau at the time, and uh, we we know what the motive was, uh, and to some extent, we know uh, the individuals involved. The Detroit family obviously had to be involved for logistics purposes, but also they were the primary liaison between the Teamsters and uh, the organized crime and, of course, the Teamsters Pension Fund, which was used to, to finance some of their uh, uh, casinos and, and some other stuff. So uh, They
0: built Las Vegas on, on that pension fund. Correct. I mean, like and, 75% uh, of the strip was, was constructed on pension fund loans.
2: So... Um, uh so that's that's what we know and again you know Hoffa made the mistake of of threatening the uh um, basically threatening- threatening the uhloccosa nostra you know, the the families and the people that were involved and the, and and of course the uh, there was a financial aspect involved because conceivably he would have uh cut off uh their ability to get money out of the uh, Teamsters pension fund if he were to retake
0: control of the Teamsters. Greg, why do you think that Hoffa was so hell-bent on disrupting this kind of situation that had been in place for years and had benefited both sides, meaning organized labor and organized crime? And he obviously knew the type of people that he was in bed with the type of people he was doing business with these type these mobster types. Why do you think Hoffa was so intent on kind of taking a a, a giant stick and and putting it into the gorilla cage and like <laughs> <laughs> taking that stick and like uh poking the gorilla over and over again, trying to almost uh, uh you know almost like looking to an elicit a reaction like did did he do you do you believe that Hoffa believed? that he could do this and, and, and walk away unharmed?
2: Well, I, for Hoffa, you know, what he wanted was not necessarily to cut off the funds to, to organize crime. Now, What he wanted to do was take, retake control of the Teamsters, which, you know, um, if, you, if you look at Hoffa's life story, uh, he built the Teamsters into the, uh, into the organization it was. And he's a very tough guy. And he had done a lot of things in his lifetime, uh, you know. So he wasn't going to back down. And he wanted to be back in control of the Teamsters. It was, you know, uh, at least as he perceived it, it was his, his organization, his union, and he wanted to be in control. And uh, uh, when he was, got some pushback on that, because, you know, Frank Fitzsimmons, who uh, was now in charge, uh, organized crime believed they could control him and uh, not have to deal with, you know, uh, a personality like uh, Jimmy Hoffa. So that's when Jimmy started to make the threats and stuff. That hey, you know, uh, if you guys aren't going to support me and my efforts, then uh, maybe I need to uh, uh, disclose some things about you know your relationship with the Teamsters.
0: But was and, it uh, was it a calculated gamble though? Was it something that like he realized could eventually end up in his own demise or was he so um arrogant I guess to think that there was no way that they would try to hurt him?
2: Well, you know, I, I, I know I'm I, just I, I'm asking I, you to
0: play, you know, amateur psychiatrist here. <laughs> well uh,
2: and I think I think that, that uh, I and, uh, and you have to take that with the fact that you know, I'm not a psychologist, nor nor did I personally know Jimmy Hoffa but based on what what I do and what I've read, he was a very strong personality. And yeah, he was arrogant and uh, clearly arrogant. And, and like I say, a very tough individual who had fought his way to the top and felt that, you know, he could he could regain that status and that yeah, he wasn't going to back down. And I suspect that he had very much to do with that car bombing in Nemo's parking lot when they blew up Richard Fitzsimmons' car. So
1: my view has always been that. Uh, with Jimmy Hoffa's hubris, that uh, his attitude was uh, me afraid of the mob; those guys should be afraid of me.
2: That, uh, it's probably accurate. Um, uh, I, you know, again having read and know something about Hoffa, that uh, that he felt that uh, uh, that he and hubris is probably a good word. He had that that kind of uh mindset
1: and was the family uh cooperative with you as investigators after the disappearance his his wife and children
2: it's my understanding that yeah they were they were cooperative um uh, but you know uh jimmy hoffa like a lot of people led uh, two lives i think uh, he had a, i think he had a close relationship with with his wife and was uh but you know they, they were probably only aware of so much but uh my understanding was that they were in fact cooperative
0: he was he he was a uh an enigma in a lot of ways like you said he, he was known as this family man and i think he was but he was also known as kind of a, a womanizer who oh, sure. you know uh, who was out there cavorting um you know rubbing elbows in, in the fast lane uh in a social circle but at the same time was known as someone that was very committed to their family so he was kind of someone that had kind of feet in in both uh, both of those worlds um, let's kind of just wrap it up a little bit, uh, Greg, and kind of talk about some of the stuff you did after you left uh, organized crime. You, you, you did some pretty uh, historically significant work outside of organized crime in addition to the, um, the, the impact you made as a member of the FBI uh, OC squad. Um, talk a little bit about some of, your, uh, the, some of the investigations that you're most proud of um, outside of the OC um, spectrum. I know that uh, you, you worked the Unabomber, which is, is pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, you know, I had a I had a small <laughs> I had a small role in the Unabomber that ended up uh, there was kind of a not unlike maybe that picture we took at the game farm. Uh, there was sort of a fortuitous uh, twist in the Unabomber investigation, but you know, uh, the Unabomber started, uh, I believe it was 1978. He sent his first bomb, and uh, in uh, and, he, and we I know he was educated
0: in, at the University of Michigan, right?
2: correct but uh, let me um, sorry you know at at the time obviously we didn't know who the bomber was and in fact for a while we couldn't even figure out what the motive was behind the bombings the initial bombings were a little bit inept uh, the bombs were not particularly well constructed uh, didn't result And I don't think the first ones even resulted in any injuries or anything, although they they had the potential. But uh, in 1985, the Unabomber, still unknown to us, sent uh, I mean, as to his identity, sent the bomb to uh, uh, Professor McConnell at the University of Michigan. And that's how I initially got involved in the case. And uh, McConnell was a a psychology professor at Michigan, and was pretty well known in in those circles for some of the research and stuff he had done. At any rate, he received the bomb. That did not result in any si- significant injuries. It did it, it blow up his kitchen, Professor McConnell's kitchen. And one of his assistants actually opened the package, and it uh, uh, it exploded. But it was more of a uh, firebomb than an actual explosive device uh, because of the way it was a pipe bomb. But the end caps were not well secured, and so what happened is, rather than explode the pipe, it just blew the end caps off. So, uh, at any rate, uh, we uh, we dubbed the Unabomber the Unabomber because the initial targets were uh, airlines and universities. Uh, so. Bureau shorthand was University and Airlines Bomber, which was uh, short, uh, shortened to Unabomber.
0: Oh, I never knew that. That's actually pretty interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's how it came to be. Um, that the bombings continued until 1995. So, if you do the there was a but if you do the math, it's uh, it's uh, about uh, 17 years that those uh, uh, that those bombs. Being sent, uh, we still had not yet identified him, although there was some communication that was going on, and we had set up a Unabomb task force in San Francisco. So, and I was in contact with them periodically. I would get leads from the task force and things like that uh, because I was assigned to the Ann Arbor office of the FBI, which is. Uh, as uh, a satellite office in Detroit, and we covered five counties out of Ann Arbor. But I had lays on, <coughs> excuse me, with with um, University of Michigan on a lot of stuff. So uh, I was doing that, and uh, and had covered leads on the McConnell bombing, Professor McConnell. Um, and then it was decided uh, uh, the Unabomber let it be known that he wanted to, he would stop doing the bombings. If they would publish its manifesto, and it uh, was a thirty-five thousand word manifesto. So uh, the people, the, the leadership of the Unabomber Task Force, and Louis Free, who was the director of the bureau at the time, met with Janet Reno, and uh, they were uh, the bureau people were pushing to have that manifesto published. But, of course, they had to have Janet Reno sign off on that. She agreed with that, and uh, they met them with uh, the the publishers of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And, uh, reluctantly, uh, the New York Times and the Post agreed to publish the manifesto, but it would only be published in the Washington Post. And there was a tactical reason for that, uh, that... Um, the Unabombe Task Force believed that uh, the Unabomber uh, resided uh, in San Francisco. And there were some reasons for that. A, lot of the bo- a couple of the bombs, well, several of the bombs had actually uh, been sent from San Francisco. So, uh, the New York Times, you could buy in San Francisco a number of different locations, but the Washington Post, you could only buy in two. And they thought, if we get this published, there's a good chance if, in fact, he resides in San Francisco, that he would want to buy the paper. So they set up surveillance on the two sites where the Washington Post is published. The Washington Post, uh, Post published the manifesto and they did do surveillances. Uh, it didn't turn out that we identified anybody who purchased it as being minimum, but it was you know, uh, a good idea at the time. Ultimately... Um, we got information uh, through an agent uh, in D.C. that Kaczynski's brother and uh, his wife thought that there were a lot of similarities between some stuff that he had written to them uh, and the manifesto. So they went to an attorney and this attorney said uh, well, he, he obviously but he knew an FBI. And the FBI agents in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, um, but what they had done, the attorney and family had redacted out, they thought, all the personal information in the stuff they had. <clears throat> so, uh, they didn't want their brother to be identified if, in fact, he wasn't a uniform. Um, so this agent saw the stuff, and he said, you know, I I don't know for sure, but I'll send it to the task force. So he sent it to the task force, and, and one of the people that looked at it, several people looked at it, and they, they thought that there were substantial similarities, too, in the phraseology and the philosophy and stuff that he had written to whomever. But again, they didn't know who this was, uh, but there were a few things in the writings uh, that look like Uh, you know, that you might be able to identify it. And they determined that whoever had written this stuff had done undergraduate work at Harvard, um, graduate work at the University of Michigan, was born or grew up in Chicago, and uh, also had worked at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, And there was one place where the nickname Ted appeared, which you know, can either be Edward or Theodore. Um, but that was about it. And then based on our profile and everything, we had determined approximate age for the unibomb So I got a call from Joel Moss, who I knew. He was one of the supervisors on the uh, Unabom task force. And he said, Greg, this is what we got. And he told me, he says, we got this first name, Ted, and uh, we think he went to Harvard undergrad and, you know, all the stuff, and that he had done graduate work at the University of Michigan. And we think he's about this age. Can you see what you can do to find out if there was somebody doing graduate work? And we also knew that he probably did graduate work in mathematics, but that was about as much as we knew. So I said, wow, I don't know, but I'll see what I can do. Well, I knew I couldn't just go to the university's registrar office or something and say, uh, you know, what can you tell me about this? They would have probably wanted a subpoena, and uh, they weren't real friendly to the FBI at that time anyway. So, But I did know a guy who was the assistant director of the uh, Department of Public Safety at the University of Michigan, their police department, a guy by the name of Jim Smiley. And uh, I-, I called Jim, and, and to his credit, I couldn't tell him what, what we were investigating because that was, you know, I couldn't disclose that. I just told him what I had. And I had a long relationship with, with Jim, so to his credit, he didn't tell me I was nuts. He just said, well, let me see what I can do. And uh, within a few hours, he called me back. He said, I've got about five names, but only one seems to fit most of the stuff. <clears throat> he says the age isn't right, and we later found out why. But uh, the name I got for you is Theodore so I called the task force, I called Joe Moss back, and he said, uh, after I told him what I had and what he knew, he said to me, "Greg, right now, I think you and I are the only two people in the world that know Ted Kaczynski is the about." And within a few days, of course, everybody, all the people in the task force knew. We had him under surveillance for about six weeks before we finally arrested him, but uh, that was sort of the story. We were going to find out anyway because the, the attorney for uh, Ted's brother met with the task force a few days later and came in and said, "I've got this information, but I'm not going to. I need some some assurances from you up front." And the task force guys just said to him, hey, "Would it help any if we told you the name's Ted Kaczynski?" And of course that helped a lot. But that's the story.
1: So when you were looking at the Uh, college records, you were just cross-referencing who studied their undergrad work at Harvard? I mean, how did you make that connection with that? that...
2: That's that's basically it. Uh, You know, um, Jim went over and he had access because he was the assistant director of the uh, University Police Department. He had access to student records and stuff. So he went back to the, the period of time, which was the late 60s. And looked at grad students in mathematics, looked for where they did undergraduate work, uh, Harvard, and uh, and then from that tried to figure out um, if there were, you know, if he could tell if they were uh, the residence was in Chicago or had been born in Chicago, and uh, that's basically how we came about, came up with it.
1: What uh, what tipped you off that this individual? Did their undergraduate work at Harvard? What 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 was in those, well, in those manifesto? In those
2: writings that those redacted writings that Ted's uh, brother had. Uh, there was uh, some indication that he had done undergraduate work at Harvard, um, and I can't tell you specifically what they had. Are some letters from Ted to his brother David, um, and uh, I think uh, portions of letters of. And there were, uh, uh, like I said, they tried to redact out all the personal information, but they missed a few things. And it, you know, it was, uh, I'm, I am I want to say, about 20 to 30 pages of stuff that they had. And and again, some of the phraseology in it was the same as the manifesto, and that was the key thing for the task force. He said things like, you know, the adage about it, having your cake and eat it, too. He would, he phrased it, um... Even your cake and having it too. He turned it around, and he did that in the manifesto, and he also did it in some of these writings. So, uh, and there were a couple other things like that, and that's that's how they knew who wrote the manifesto was also the same as who wrote these essays. So they, it became, uh, you know, a priority to find out who the author was, and we weren't sure whether the uh, that attorney or whoever had. Uh, provided that information was going to was going to provide the name, so it was critical. And then, a few after after I found out at the University of Michigan that it was Ted Kaczynski, within a few days of a task force, and he provided the name. So we, we were going to find out. Uh, it's just, I, I guess I gave him uh, a couple days head start, and, and obviously it wasn't me. It was Jim Smiley, and you know, it was a team effort. That's the point. And, you know, what I've learned in my career in the FBI is, you know, not one individual ever does anything. It's a team effort, uh, whether it be a photo at the game, or finding uh, two people. There's a lot of people involved, and nobody does it by themselves.
1: Well, Greg, we hope that at some point we can read your autobiography or someone makes a, a movie about your storied career. And uh, we greatly appreciate your your time. A and fabled
0: and, G-man that's in the history right. of the FBI. That's right. He's
1: the, the real deal. And uh, we hope to... Um, have you on again and, and not only talk about some of these the things that we've already discussed and maybe expand on and revisit, but also some of your other um, interesting cases that we just we just don't have time uh, to touch upon, including the steroid controversy uh, with Barry Bonds. So there's just a lot of things we can talk about with Greg, and uh, we hope to have, have you back on, and, and we greatly appreciate your time and, and visiting with us.
2: Well, I've I've enjoyed it, and I'd be happy to talk to you
1: again. And Greg, why don't you give people a, um, a quick rundown
0: of where they can find something? I know you you do some writing, and I know you've got some really great um, articles that you've done online about some of your work. Um, I, can, can you give people an idea where to go get that stuff?
2: Yeah, they, they've appeared a number of places, but I think uh, I think most of them um, have are on uh, TickleTheWire.com. dot com. That's all one word: tickle the wire. Dot com. And that's uh, that's a federal law enforcement uh, website, blog kind of thing that I've written columns for and stuff. And so a lot of these stories that, of cases that I've been involved in, get it there.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Greg. Next time we'll, we'll have you come in studio and uh, we'll chop it up in person. Um, This has been a blast. Uh, We love uh, being able to pick the brain of of someone like yourself uh, that just has such an an amazing career and just a great storyteller. Uh, Thanks so much, Greg, for joining us on the Original Gangsters podcast. You are a true OG, and we appreciate you.
1: Thank you, Greg. Well, thank you, guys. I've enjoyed it.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Greg. All right, we'll see you next time on the OG podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein for Jimmy Bucciolato and Roberto Bouchain. Peace. We'll see you around the corner.